You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about food allergies. Joining me is Dr. Jonathan Spurgle, who's chief of the allergy program at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Spurgle. My pleasure, Katie. Happy to be here. Great. Well, I feel like I talk about food allergies all the time, especially with my infant patients as we're talking about introducing foods, but can you help give me some context about how common are food allergies in general? Food allergies occur between 2 to 80%. The exact number really depends on how you define it. A lot more people think they have food allergies. So if you ask like the general public, the number's about four to five-fold higher. But in general, what we define as physicians as food allergies is about 2 to 8%. And it definitely has risen in the last 20 years. And that's probably, you're saying, some people think something like lactose intolerance might be a food allergy, but you're not classifying that. Right. And then there's a lot of people think when I eat a food, they get these irritant reactions, like the classic one is like strawberries. They're a messy eater because they're infants and toddlers and they wear the food and the food is just irritating their skin. That's not really a food allergy. That's just because the food is acidic and you're irritating the skin. That's not really a food allergy. And people think, oh my God, I'm allergic to this. Like, no, you just, you're a toddler. You're a messy eater. You're wearing your food and the food's sitting on your skin. It's causing a rash. That can happen with anything. Right. I hear that one a lot. So which foods though are the most common allergens? It has changed a little over the last several years. It's still what we used to call a top eight. We've added now nines. We added sesame. So it's still milk, egg, soy, wheat, peanut, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, and now sesame seeds. Things have moved down. Soy has come less common. So has wheat. Shellfish is really uncommon in the younger age group, but much more common in adults. And sesame has moved in as we've added more to our diet. And we talk a lot about peanut allergy. And in fact, Dr. Hill and I talked about peanut allergy specifically on this podcast a few years ago, so people can go back and listen to that. But how often are kids who are allergic to peanuts also allergic to other tree nuts like cashews? So people always get confused. And this is really common in it because the word peanut, people think peanuts are nut. It's not really a nut. It's a pea. So that's a really common thing we have to educate all our families about. But in terms of that cross-reactivity, it's about 10%. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction that took me a while to remember, too. In talking about peanuts, so in 2015, the New England Journal of Medicine published the Learning Early About Peanut Allergy, or LEAP trial, which was a randomized control trial to determine the best strategy to prevent peanut allergy in young children. This trial looked at children between 4 to 11 months of age who were identified as being high risk for peanut allergy based on having an existing egg allergy and or severe eczema. And they found that in high-risk infants, sustained consumption of peanut beginning in the first 11 months of life was highly effective in preventing the development of peanut allergy. Since this trial was published, I've been recommending that patients introduce peanut protein at least three times a week, starting at around five to six months of age. Is this still the current recommendation? 
Yes, but the guidelines really have gone back many years, have decided to know something. There was never any evidence that stoning peanut or any food late made sense. There was no evidence that doing delayed introduction made sense in preventing allergies. There was never any study that prevented it. So all the studies now have suggested that early is better. This was the LEAP study, which is the one that was the best about that. But there have been many other randomized control studies, something called EAT, where they gave food, many foods to infants who were breastfeeding infants. There was the bead study and the heap study looking at like A. So there's been milk studies. They've all consistently shown the same thing, that early is better. So the all the guidelines now have now switched our recommendations that we had 20 years ago that said delay. Now we say don't delay. You want to give the food when their child can do it, when they're really emotionally ready. Go back to what the recommendations were 40, 50 years ago when it was early. So you're saying that not only should I be telling my patients to introduce peanut early when they're introducing other foods, but also other common allergens like egg and tree nuts. Yeah. The thought for egg is not to do raw egg, but baked eggs, so eggs that are cooked in things. You can't do certain foods that are allergens like nuts because they're choking hazards. So you can do a nut butter, right? You can't do milk because of iron issues, which most other pediatricians know much better than I do. But you can give yogurt. You can really start giving these things. The exact time frame, I think people debate whether it's four months, six months, eight months. But really, there's no reason not to wait to give foods in, but you can really give everything early. Right. So your point about egg, I use that a lot. I say when they're developmentally ready, egg can be a tricky one because I don't think most people want to do a runny egg with a with a baby. Um, but, you know, a finger feeding baby could do scrambled egg, you know, at nine to 10 months if they're developmentally at that stage. Right. Yeah. Th- I think that's really key because you have to be developmentally ready. Otherwise, they're not going to try the food. It's It's sort of pediatricians know better. I can say what foods to go in, but there's that developmental stage, which I'm, I'm going to defer to the, the pediatricians more than <laughs> more than me as an allergist. I mean, I was a pediatrician at one point, but it's been a long time since I've done that, though. <laughs> well, another thing that I hear often is that families are worried about a genetic predisposition to food allergies. Many times they'll tell me that, you know, dad had an allergy when he was a kid, and so now they don't want to introduce that food to their child. So do any of the common food allergies actually run in families? Great question. So the answer is probably not, but there is definitely, I mean, allergies in general run in families. If you're allergic to milk, the next kid be allergic to milk. If it is, it's a weak genetic trait. It's going to be a really small increase in risk factor. And when they've tried to look at it for like peanut, that's been studied probably the most extensively, it's not been seen to hold the case. And other foods, it, and generally in food allergy, there may be something there, but it's not really strong. But allergies in general are genetic. So if you have asthma or allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis or food allergies, your children or the, your siblings are much more increased risk than having one of those things. So that's true. But to an individual food, probably not. And I think what I see sometimes in primary care is that a family where there is a severe food allergy, they don't keep that food in the house. And so when they have a new baby, 
they might not have peanut butter on hand because they've been so good at trying to avoid it. And so it can be something that takes a lot of planning to introduce in a safe way without exposing the at-risk family member. I agree. It's a really tricky thing how to add food to a house when one person's allergic to it and one's not. How do you keep separate cookies or products away from each other? I mean, I'll give my own personal story. I mean, I have a kid with sesame seed allergy and we have gluten in our house, but we have three members out of four people in our house have celiac disease. So when we, my kids were little, we had the one person who didn't have celiac disease had one shelf in the closet for their food and everyone else ate everything else. And sesame seeds, we kept out of the house because they were just easy to go everywhere, but we would eat it out when we were out. So when we were out around, we would eat, but not in the house because they were little. And nowadays, it's just that's not, we just don't have much sesame seeds, but I would bring it into the house. I mean, now, so it's not, not an issue. So I, I understand that and love that. Yeah. That's a good way to make sure that your siblings aren't eating your snacks if you have your own shelf too. <laughs> so after we identify a food allergy in an infant, this is something that primary care pediatricians think about a lot. When is the best time for us to refer them to allergy for testing? So you can do it anytime. We can, from a allergy testing question, like related to that, when can you test them? And you can test them as soon. If they react, you can test them. It means they have enough IgE for a blood test or a skin test. Our recommendation is when you see an allergic reaction, send it to us. And it also helps us sometimes is the example of the kid ate a blueberry muff, walnut muffin. And what did he react to in that blueberry walnut muffin, right? And we can, we can help figure that out, right? Because it could be the egg in the muffin or the milk in the muffin or the walnut in the muffin or all the above. So it helps us to figure that out. So the allergy test itself, when you do a skin test, can you do that in an infant or do you do that when they're older? My understanding was always they had to be older. No, the youngest age I've ever done is a seven-day-old. Wow. So you can do it pretty young. Wow. Okay. That's new information for me. So I hope that helps other listeners. When we talk about blood tests, so you mentioned IgE, I was always taught that we should not be routinely doing RAS testing in the primary care setting because there are a lot of false positives. Can you help teach me about that? So you're totally correct. So RAS testing, which is the old term for specific IgE, the technology has changed, but the idea of doing specific IgEs, you get a fair amount of false positive. So for that blueberry muffin that we just talked about, the person may come up positive to wheat, walnut, and egg, and it's really only the walnuts positive. Some foods get a huge number of false positives, and so they can be really unreliable. So if you have a history of whether you had a clinical reaction, they ate that scrambled egg and they had hives everywhere, a skin test or a specific Ig is probably pretty easy at that point. But if you're doing it because, hey, they have had severe eczema and you're testing for foods that way, then specific IgEs are really useless. They probably work less than 25% of the time. So in that case, I would never do it. So I think it really depends on the circumstance when you were trying to figure, hey, they ate a pancake and I know he's eating bread all the time, but it's the first time it's milk and egg because he was only breastfeeding. Like, well, maybe at that point it maybe makes sense because I can do milk and egg and figure out which two I'm more worried about. But otherwise, like anything in medicine, we never want to blindly order tests. Right. 
And the place where I've been using IgE is peanut IgE in high-risk infants prior to introduction of peanuts. So in the kids with severe eczema or prior known egg allergy, I'll do a peanut IgE to look at their risk for having peanut allergy before they introduce it. Is that still a current practice that you would recommend? Now you're getting into controversy. <laughs> um, so the NIH guidelines still recommend it, but the new guidelines, which have not been approved, will remove that warning. They're going to change that recommendation. The feeling was you had too many false positives, and if you did it on a national scale, you would actually swamp the allergist's office, and you would delay the introduction that you want. So the Canadian, the British, the Australian, and the European societies have all said not to do it. The American societies are in final review to remove it. It's just, it's, it's moving very slowly. It's been under that for an extended period of time. I'll just leave it at that, but it's going away. So, so you are following the current guidelines, but the current <laughs> guidelines are going to change. Okay, good to know. We'll keep our eyes out for that too. So another question that parents ask me all the time is how often do children outgrow these childhood food allergies? And if they are going to, when can they expect them to outgrow them? So it's not a simple answer. It depends on the food. Certain foods like peanut, it's much more uncommon. Maybe it's 20%, but foods like milk and egg and wheat is much closer to 80, 90%. We usually tell people can outgrow it anywhere. I mean, you can do it as soon as a year, but usually we tell people between three and eight is the normal time frame. Some people outgrow it when they're 12 to 14. I always wonder in that older age group, did they outgrow it sooner? tough to tell because you don't know, but we usually say between three and eight is a normal time frame. Great. That's good to know. Another thing that comes up often is the infant who has milk protein intolerance, usually diagnosed with a positive hemocult, and they're on a dairy-free formula. When they turn one, we usually transition them over to whole milk, but parents are always very worried about this and wonder how often do kids with a milk protein intolerance actually end up having a milk allergy? Uncommon, luckily. It's otherwise, it can happen. It's rare. And we occasionally will see these kids. We see the extreme ones, the kids who have milk intolerance not only to hydrolyzed formulas, but to the extremely hydrolyzed formulas. So the ones who are the most extreme. And we'll skin test them occasionally, but it's less than 5%. It's pretty rare. And a lot of these kids will be tolerating milk in things like eating milk and cakes and cookies and breads and things like that. If they're doing that, then I have no concern whatsoever. We don't recommend routinely testing them because it's such a rare event. And because milk intolerance that you described is relatively common. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, you've already taught me a lot of new things about food allergies right now, but what's on the horizon in food allergy research? So what do we have to look forward to coming from your specialty? So there are a couple really exciting things. One that was just FDA approved earlier this year was the peanut oil immunotherapy. So oral immunotherapy is the idea of making your body get used to things. It's like allergy shots, but instead of doing allergy shots, you eat the food. So for peanut, it has been approved. You take a little peanut, you eat it every day, and you slowly get your body used to it. It's done at home with doctor supervision because there's a risk of anaphylaxis. So it's for people who really want to do it. It doesn't make you non-allergic. It makes you less sensitive, right? So it's about 10% fail because of anaphylaxis, 10% fail because of vomiting and too many side effects. 
but it works in 60 to 70% of the people. And you can do it not only to peanut, but you can do it to any food. So there are many places in the country, including us, who are now doing it to peanut and almost any food that you're interested in doing it. So it can be done. That's step one that's, I think, in the immediate future. Step two, there are other ways to what we call desensitize you to make you less allergic. There's things in clinical trials called epicutaneous immunotherapy, where you wear a patch of a food. There is sublingual, where you sort of put it underneath the tongue. Epicutaneous is now under FDA review, and they had some issues with patch adherence, and they're going to have to redo it. But that's one thing that's pretty far along. There is using the various biologics to reduce your likelihood of allergic reactions. So there is ongoing NIH clinical trial using something called omlizumab or Zolaire, which has been approved for years for asthma. It lowers your IgE. So what people are now trying to figure out, can you use it to lower your sensitivity to foods, right? So that's another one that's going to be clinical. So there are various things that people are trying to do to make you less allergic. So the things are changing. We used to tell people there's no hope. I think now there is hope. To me, one of the biggest mysteries is who's going to be rate for that severe reaction. That we really don't know yet at all. Who's going to have just hives and who's going to have that severe anaphylaxis? And I think that's one of our things we need to decide in the, in the future. Well, it's great. Like you said, that there's more hope. I know that that gives so many families a lot of relief just knowing that the chance that their child might have a severe life-threatening reaction could be decreased. That's giving them a lot of hope right there. It's better news than we had if you asked me this five years ago. So medicine does improve. There is hope, as they like to say. Well, you guys are making a lot of advancements pretty quickly in your field, and we appreciate all the research that you're doing. Can you tell us where we can find the Division of Allergy at CHOP? We have locations at many of our specialty care centers. We are currently, obviously, on Burger campus. We're in Voorhees. We are now actually expanded just recently to Virtua, the other site in Forhees. We are in Princeton. We're in King of Prussia. We're in Brandywine. We're in Exton. And we'll be soon expanding out to Lancaster. Hopefully, we'll hit a few more of our subspecialty centers in the near future. Great. So many places to find you. And we know that we can always call 1-800-CHOP to talk to somebody in allergy as well. And we can find you on the CHOP website, which we will link to on our site as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really learned so much about food allergies. And like I said, this is a, a common topic for us in primary care. So we really appreciate your guidance since these guidelines are constantly changing. I'm happy to do it, Katie. And please come back. We're happy to chat some more. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.